Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and the 10th annual C. Everett Koop Lecture. Tobacco Treatment Conference is about to commence, and we will hear an introduction of our speaker, Dr. Gunderson, in just a moment. A couple of points uh, to receive CME credit for today. The code is 5GMD. You would text that into the appropriate place, and you'll receive your CME credits. There are no declared conflicts of interest for today's lecture. To introduce Dr. Gunderson to you today, I bring Jim Sargent to the podium. Jim is the director of the C. Everett Koop Institute. He is the Scott and Lisa Stewart Professor of Pediatric Oncology. He is a professor of pediatrics and of biomedical data science. So, Jim, would you please come and tell us about today's speaker? Excuse me. Thank you, Rich. Uh, welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and welcome to the 10th Annual C. Everett Koop Tobacco Conference. C. Everett Koop Institute focuses on uh, preventing chronic disease. Uh, we focus specifically on corporate products that are the cause of chronic disease. And uh, tobacco being <clears throat> one of the most important ones, we have an annual conference on how best to treat tobacco use. What's becoming increasingly clear for people that study tobacco is that uh, it's not just cigarettes anymore. Uh, people are using multiple tobacco products. Probably about half of tobacco users are using multiple products. Some of those products are being <clears throat> marketed as uh, safer products, lower harm products. And uh, we're uh, currently doing a uh, work on a population uh, national sample of, uh, of uh, U.S. tobacco users. 25% of adult tobacco users are using marijuana. Um, I'm here to tell you that marijuana is legal. Marijuana is coming to town. Uh, it's, it's, it might not be this year, it might not be next year, but it's coming. And, and at some point, we're going to have uh, shops uh, in both of our states selling marijuana. And uh, so I kind of became aware of this issue at a pediatric conference a couple of years ago when uh, pediatricians from Colorado were talking about you know, breastfeeding mothers coming to postpartum uh, pediatric visits, and uh, they and their 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 uh, partners were high. And uh, so, you know, with legal marijuana comes stronger marijuana, comes uh, kind of more acceptance of use. And uh, we thought it would be good to uh, lead the conference with somebody from Colorado that could tell us a little bit uh, something about what it's like uh, to be in Colorado where uh, marijuana has been legal for some years now. So Doris Gunderson's a privately practicing psychiatrist in Denver, Colorado. She's the um, head of the Colorado Physician Health Program, and uh, she kind of floated the top because she's been given talks about uh, what, it's, what it's like to be in, uh, 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 a physician and a care provider in uh, uh, Colorado. Uh, with uh, legalization of marijuana. We thought we'd uh, lead the conference with that and then uh, follow that with a number of talks uh, throughout the conference about some of these alternative tobacco products, and we're especially interested in the e-cigarettes, but you'll see a, a whole uh, slew of people coming through talking about these alternative products. So um, thank you for uh, schlepping all the way across the Midwest to the Northeast. And, uh, Dr. Gunderson, My we look pleasure. forward to you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Wow. 
I want to thank everyone who got up this morning to come in and hear this lecture. Um, just to start, I want to let you know that I, I do not have any specific conflicts of interest. I'm not part owner in a dispensary, and I'm not a DEA informant, and both of those are clashing groups today. So um, I, I'll tell you, I never would have found myself on a stage talking about marijuana, but when it was fully legalized in Colorado, as a social scientist, I became very interested to, to, to watch our city transform. And you'll see some of this in the slides I present today. Um, in terms of objectives, I just, again, want to tell the story, because you will invariably in see this in your own state, just how it all came along. Um, some of the negative impact, and I would have to say my bias about marijuana being legalized um, it is there. Um, I'm absolutely in favor of decriminalizing these drugs because a lot of young people went to prison simply for being in possession of uh, marijuana. Um, talk a little bit about uh, smoking and alcohol consumption or trends in Colorado post-legalization of marijuana. And then just some closing thoughts about what you might want to be uh, thinking about and planning for as this wave uh, reaches your state. So it was in November of 2000 that Coloradans passed Amendment 20, which is an amendment to our state constitution. And 54% of uh, Colorado citizens were in favor. So it wasn't a landslide. It was a very close vote. And in retrospect, talking to a lot of people who voted in favor, their real push was decriminalization. It wasn't so much that they supported um, developing dispensaries or supported more people having access to cannabis products. Um, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment was basically tasked with um, designing, implementing the medical marijuana registry. And the Colorado Board of Health approved all the rules and regulations that would go into operating that registry. And in June of 2001, uh, the registry began accepting applications for medical marijuana. And the, basically what needs to happen is, obviously, physicians cannot prescribe marijuana. It's proscribed under uh, Schedule 1, right? But in Colorado, physicians can make a recommendation if they believe that a cannabis product may, in fact, help someone's specific debilitating condition. And I'll talk more about that. So the rules and regulations look something like this, that basically the patient um, will be deemed to have established an affirmative defense to such allegation, meaning this, the possession of marijuana. Uh, the patient has to have been diagnosed by a practicing physician with a specific debilitating condition. And there has to be a bona fide physician-patient relationship because there were a few pretty egregious instances where physicians set up shop, maybe in a tattoo parlor, and just was writing out recommendations all day long uh, without creating a patient chart or without any follow-up. So they tried to tighten that fact. And in terms of debilitating conditions, you'll see that many of these, I'm sorry if the type is small in the back, but things like cachexia, severe pain, cancer, HIV, AIDS, seizures, uh, muscle spasms, severe nausea, glaucoma, 
Um, Post-traumatic stress disorder was the only other condition added to this registry of debilitating conditions, and it was with a brutal political fight. It was a political vote that got this to happen, not the science. And it was kind of sad, uh, speaking with the legislators, that you know there were many veterans that showed, and they do have very tragic stories. Uh, you know, the VA has not been able to accommodate the needs of all veterans, and there have been some very sad stories. There's a high suicide rate. But the legislators appealed to those stories and really didn't listen to any of the scientists that spoke about the harms, especially of smoked cannabis. And then any other medical condition has to be approved by the state health agency, and so far none have been added, and there's been just an array of conditions that people want to see added to this registry. Now, when we saw the, the issuance of um, medical marijuana cards, what we noticed very quickly is that most of the cards were going to patients with muscle spasms, severe pain, and severe nausea, especially the severe pain, which is a highly subjective condition, right? My 10 may be very different from your 10 on a, a scale of 1 to 10. So that was interesting. It made it easy for people to get cards because it's hard to measure, measure pain. Um, and then where many citizens in Colorado thought the cards would go to, we didn't see much here. You know, they were thinking of terminally ill or severely ill patients who um, would benefit. And now we're seeing a new FDA-approved product, right, for two different types of pediatric seizures. So it's actually available um, in certain circumstances despite still having a Schedule One rating. And if you look at the demographic, this hasn't changed so much over the years since legalization. Most in, in Denver Metro, most of the people carrying cards are relatively young male patients um, who have chronic pain. And, you know, that just makes you wonder why all of these young men might have severe chronic pain. Uh, one might be that something's going on that we haven't completely captured medically, or two, they're utilizing the cards for recreational use, but it's, it's going under a medical marijuana card. And then there um, have been, on average, about 800 physicians in the state who make recommendations. Again, emphasis that you can't prescribe it, but you can make a recommendation. And it's a relatively small number. There are close to 20,000 physicians practicing in the state of Colorado. So it's a small number. Um, some of them are legitimate. They're oncologists, um, pain doctors, uh, uh, some pediatricians treating these children with infractable seizures. So some of that's legitimate, and some of them are what I would uh, compare to a pill mill. They're, they're just literally making money off the sale of marijuana without having a lot of background research in you know, where there's efficacy, where there's not. There's no known uh, literature really about drug-drug interactions with whole plant marijuana, and so it's a, a little bit of a risky business, but they're doing it. Now, what was interesting in Colorado, uh, we first legalized medical marijuana. And I think the strategy by the proponents of legalizing marijuana were very brilliant, and they continue to be. You see the same strategy kind of move across the country. 
that medical marijuana captures a lot of compassion. You know, of course I want to help someone that nothing in Western medicine has helped. You know, of course I don't want this person to be in pain. And that allows the nose to get in the tent. And then comes in the big Trojan horse, which is the push for full legalization. And that's exactly what happened in Colorado. And I'll also say a lot of the money that went into paying lobbyists was from out of state, from other organizations um, that want to see this happen. It was not so much from uh, citizens within the state of Colorado. So the next phase of what happened in Colorado was actually what we call the commercialization of medical marijuana, um, or actually just marijuana in general. But in 2009, during um, uh, President Obama's administration, when this was becoming legal in, in some states, he basically said there would be a low priority prosecuting um, people who were utilizing medical marijuana appropriately. So that made everyone less fearful of the federal government fluxing in and making a bunch of busts, right? And then later that same year, uh, an Ogden memorandum was put out by the U.S. Attorney General and in very specific written terms said they will not seek to arrest medical marijuana users and suppliers as long as they conform to state laws. And this, this was actually a pivotal moment in our state because it was essentially seen as a green light that no one was going to get in, in trouble. Another thing that happened early on in our legalization is Initially, the state did not limit caregivers who could grow marijuana, so there was an abundance of marijuana, and that's now um, changing to limit the number of people that can actually grow. So you can see, um, this is just between 2009, that Ogden Memorandum, and 2011, where the blue shows the applications for medical marijuana cards. Um, in 2009, and then 2011, just exponential growth in the asks. And here are the valid ID cards that were issued. Um, what you can see is another exponential growth, but at least some people got excluded, maybe 100,000 or so, or no, less than that, maybe 20,000, actually were rejected for a card. So I think the health department is trying to be, uh, trying to scrutinize and do the right thing. And our, you know, we really were on the map, um, not for the traditional Rocky Mountain High, which to me, having lived there since 1989, is, you know, these beautiful 14ers you climb and you get above the tree line and you, you know, feel this majestic view. Or right now in Colorado with the, the aspen trees glowing yellow, you know, kind of sun kissing our mountains. Or the bike riding or the skiing or the, the running, you know, Rocky Mountain High became to have a new meaning. And there actually was an influx into the, the state, once it was legalized, of very enthusiastic um, pot lovers. I mean, they're just like, wow, this stuff's legal now. Um, there's one magazine called uh, Westward. It's just typically been a flimsy kind of weekly magazine that sort of outlines what's going on in town. Well, it became very thick and uh, very expensive photography and vinyl pages and advertising things like this. Uh, storefront medical marijuana dispensaries sprouted like weeds, and they did. <laughs> 
And the Denver Post actually had printed that this one time there were more dispensaries than Starbucks and McDonald's stores combined. And now it's even with liquor stores. And early on as this was happening, I mean, just regardless of your political, moral, you know, social beliefs, just watching the phenomenon was very entertaining. And I swore I'd get out there with my camera and take a picture of every dispensary. Well, they proliferated so fast, I just got kind of paralyzed in the process and, you know, kind of stopped halfway through. But it's, it's kind of entertaining to watch. And remember, this was 2008, 2009, when in this country we had a background recession going on. It was really a difficult time for most of us. But this industry proved to be recession-proof because it wasn't just the people growing marijuana or the caregivers. <laughs> there was a handful of attorneys in the state who made this their expertise. And I will say they're very good attorneys who happen to choose the industry to, to focus their attention on. Um, certainly doctors were making money, usually 150 to $200 a recommendation. So you can see the temptation, right, especially if you're working in situations with, um, you know, health maintenance organizations, uh, insurance companies not reimbursing very well, that kind of thing. It's just an easy route for making some cash. Then, of course, all the paraphernalia that goes into the industry. Um, people got creative and went from just the whole plant marijuana to creating edibles that primarily concentrate THC, the psychoactive substance in marijuana. Um, I've talked about West, Westward, lots of advertising. Now the industry has their own magazine. And I read it every once in a while because it's just so interesting to see a different perspective, you know, kind of a non-medical perspective about this whole phenomenon. Festivals have developed, marijuana festivals, delivery services for those who may be too stoned to pick it up themselves. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. I give them credit for not driving, but... Uh, or, to, you know, to be fair, if there is someone who is, say, has multiple sclerosis, very spastic, cannot drive, you know, that may be a legitimate service. And then, of all things, armed trucks come to rescue the industry. Because remember, as long as this is federally prescribed, the industry cannot rely on federally insured banks to put their money. And they've tried with some creative names, like healthy choices, but when the bank digs a little bit deeper in the weeds, no pun intended, they find this is a marijuana industry and we want no part of it. They're really afraid of the federal government. So you have a cash business. And so groups like this have developed. Um, this is called the Iron Protection Group. And many of the guys that are part of these armored trucks are um, uh, ex-military. So strong, strategic, and will take your cash to, you know, deliver to wherever you're storing. Typically, it's a safe at home for many of these industries, which is not exactly secure if your neighbors know what business you're in, right? And then we definitely see this happening, and I'll allude to this a little bit later, but, um, you know, two things we're seeing is, is a much greater use of marijuana in Colorado. And, and part of that is when something is perceived as more acceptable, meaning legal, some people believe that means it's safe. And there are a lot of things that are legal that are not necessarily safe, right? Tobacco being one of them, uh, alcohol being one of them. 
So we really started to see more medical psychiatric complications related to the increased use of cannabis products in our state. Um, I'm at a physician health program. Are any of you familiar with PHPs? Basically, we're, we're peer assistance services. So when physicians get ill or they're burned out or they may have an alcohol problem, they can come to us for an evaluation. We help get them into proper treatment, monitor for a while until they're healthy enough to go back to work. And one of the things we were worried about is we were going to get a whole physician population, now that it's legal, using marijuana. And that just didn't happen. We had a, a, a trickle of younger doctors uh, maybe have a positive year drug screen at work, referred to us for an evaluation to rule out, you know, uh, dependence. Um, but that's about it. The, the f a few other doctors sent to us were those, um, you know, kind of generous prescribers, those making uh, generous uh, recommendations. Uh, one was a physician who sat his camper outside of Red Rocks. Anyone familiar with Red Rocks? It's this fabulous outdoor um, music arena made out of Red Rock. And in the winter, you sit there and you listen to live music and you can see all the stars. It's just beautiful. But this guy set his camper out there, this physician, and for two days just used the ink writing recommendations for marijuana for all these concert goers. And by the way, the concert goers were all attending a two-day fish festival. So it was pretty wild. But he ended up, I think it was 3,000 recommendations, and obviously no patient chart, no follow-up. So he, he, I believe his license got suspended and maybe later revoked. I mean, that's a clear exploitation, exploitation of the law. So we think some of the deterrents to physicians recommending marijuana is, one, we tend to be a more conservative profession, right? And we, we're trained to examine science and make sure it supports efficacy and that it's um, safe. Um, we take an oath to do no harm, right? And this doesn't apply just to doctors. I know there's nurses in the room, but really we step back and say, you know, how helpful is this or what kind of harm is it going to cause? Um, I think we tend to, as a group to be a little fearful of the DEA. It's an agency that doesn't have a large sense of humor. <laughs> um, again, at the, the PHP where I work, I have physicians who come in, and especially with this opiate epidemic, you know, they may be higher prescribers because they have um, uh, cancer patients, terminal cancer patients who need large quantities of opiates. But this group comes in, and they just take the place over. I mean, they start grabbing charts and collecting things and beg you to give them your license. And I would always say, don't. It's yours until proven otherwise. But I think that fear of a powerful agency makes us think twice, too, especially given this substance is still proscribed on a federal level. What we're seeing in Colorado is hospitals adopting a zero-tolerance policy. And um, that creates more fear, especially for hospital-based physicians who are um, employed by the agency. And there, there are legitimate reasons for doing this. The most legitimate is, unlike alcohol, we really don't have good parameter, parameters for measuring impairment with uh, marijuana. 
And in Colorado, police do roadside maneuvers, and they're pretty good at it. There's a couple of maneuvers that are specific for marijuana that they can use. But we don't have a test for marijuana like alcohol, which um, eliminates in a linear fashion. And because THC, the psychoactive component of marijuana, is very lipophilic, it can be stored in fat for a long, long time. Up to two months is what I've seen in one patient. And then just leach out and cause positive urine drug screens or positive THC screens, even if the person isn't using. So it's just pretty tricky. And then I think the other reason is, as physicians, we see most of the literature replete with the known negatives of marijuana. Because most of the research up until now has been on populations of addicts, right? So the, the, the literature is focused on the harm done to people who become dependent on substances like tobacco, cocaine, marijuana. Okay. So this was an interesting um, Supreme Court case in Colorado, went all the way up to the state Supreme Court. Brandon Coates worked for Dish Network good employee. He suffered from some uh, spasticity. I can't remember if it was from an accident or an underlying disease. And he was wheelchair bound, but he did good work. And it was announced within the company that random urine drug screening was going to be implemented because they wanted to be a company where they knew their employees were working safely. So Mr. Coates went to his supervisor and said, you know, I have a red card. That's the marijuana card. Um, my doctor recommended this. I use it judiciously. I'm not impaired at work, but I need this because otherwise I have all of these problems. Mr. Coates' employer fired him, and the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled 6-0 that the firing of Brandon Coates was legal. And what they based it on is something called a supremacy clause. And you may have heard that used in other contexts, like where there's land disputes, that the federal government, the federal law trumps state law. So what that means in Colorado right now is that an employer can choose not to hire or choose to fire someone that's using cannabis, even if it's for medicinal purposes. That's pretty far-reaching, and I anticipate this will be challenged. But because of this ruling, most medical centers have adopted zero-tolerance policies. It's just too fuzzy right now to figure out what's, what's enough use to you know, maybe treat something medically but not impair the physician or nurse in the workplace. So I think there's more research to be done in this area. But I thought that was so broad-reaching and, again, probably will be uh, challenged. What else we've seen in Colorado, you know, around 2010, the THC percentage in, in the plants was around 10%. And remember in the 70s, 60s, 70s, it was probably like 2 or 3%. It wasn't very potent marijuana. But through brilliant botanists and... Uh, uh, bartender or uh, bud tenders, they have learned to create these amazing hybrid plants. And we've seen the potency, you know, go from 10%, which is already pretty high, 
all the way up to 35%. And this is just in the dry cannabis sold in the stores that, are, that is usually smoked. Um, so what we're seeing is that this isn't the pot your, your grandpa smoked, right? <laughs> this is a new drug, the way THC is being commercialized. This kind of potency is close to a psychedelic not just kind of the mild buzz people used to get from marijuana. And some people actually refer to it now as heroina, um, uh, spelled many different, different ways, depending on whether you're stoned or straight. Right? <laughs> but extremely potent pot. And where we see trouble with this is when we have tourists come in, and they're so excited. You know, I'll take an ounce of that, and I'll take an ounce of that. And they have no idea that this is different from what they can get in their own state or what they used to smoke 20 years ago. And so many emergency room encounters for, you know, bad trips. So what are some of the known negatives that I, I try to educate my patients? I don't want to be just, you know, Debbie Downer and say, don't smoke pot. It's just more like, well, think about these things as you're making this decision. But definitely pulmonary problems. I mean, this group knows all about the woes of tobacco and how that has really negatively impacted the public health in this country, right? And proponents of uh, legalizing marijuana um, hotly debate whether or not cannabis causes lung cancer. Uh, we do know it causes increased airway resistance for chronic smokers. Um, uh, COPD, basically, hyperinflation of the lungs, more infections, and in hospitals in Colorado, we are seeing all these nasty substances. Someone may come in with a chronic cough. They choose not to disclose that they smoke or vape marijuana. Um, an x-ray usually shows some kind of big <coughs> fungal ball in the lung that will be treated with antifungal medication or antibacterial medication, but sometimes a siege, uh, medical surgical procedure needs to happen to remove the growth from the lung. Um, again, it's hotly debated about whether or not smoked cannabis causes lung cancer. Um, I'm glad that's not mine. <laughs> you know, it's so ironic and really sad to me that in Colorado there's a great uh, smoking cessation campaign going on as the quit line. It, it may have something very similar here. But smoke, uh, tobacco smokers can call in, they get a counselor, they can get free nicotine patches or gum, they get follow-up, they get mentoring. I mean, it's just a great program and it's all for free. But then we introduce a new smoked product into the state that's probably as noxious as uh, tobacco smoke. And what's interesting is that if you compare tobacco and cannabis, they have about 4,000 identical chemicals, including some of the known carcinogens. And when you think about how a cigarette is smoked compared to, say, a joint, right, when people are smoking marijuana, it's a deep inhalation with a delay before they exhale. And so there's probably more exposure to some of those noxious chemicals compared to a tobacco smoke. So some people switch over to vaporizers, handheld, but also big machines where, you know, theoretically the steam takes out all the chemicals and you're just getting pure 
THC and CBD. And we see this, how many of you are familiar with dabbing? Heard of that? Well, I'll tell you a funny story. I, was, um, I have a private practice in addition to the other work I do. And my patient is a mother of two um, teenage children. And she kept finding butane cans in her son's trunk of his car. And this was before I knew about this. I'm just scratching my head. I'm like, you know, he could be a pyromaniac, but, you know, there are no fires that you know of that have been started. And with a little more research, what we found is he was purchasing hashish oil, you know, that very condensed form of THC, infusing it with butane. Um, it creates this sort of gummy, waxy substance that can then be uh, lit to fire and smoked to get a THC concentration of up to 90%. Unheard of. And here's some of how it looks, 80 to 90% concentration of THC. Um, some people call it BHO, earwax. I guess it kind of looks like earwax. <laughs> um, uh, shatter, all kinds of different names. But it's just this really sticky, tarry substance that's usually... Um, lit on fire to, and the smoke inhaled. And then I put this up here, butan cans and a mind-altering substance, what could go wrong, right? <laughs> and, you know, this is funny, but what has happened in Colorado, like none, none ever before, there are certain BHO labs that have had terrible explosions, you know, when the, the shatter makers don't quite know what they're doing. And people coming into our hospitals with very severe burns, because can you imagine how hot this substance gets when, the, when they're burning it? So we've seen some burn injuries. Who would have thought that would be a, a side product of marijuana being legalized? We know there are cardiovascular problems. Um, there's an association between inhaling marijuana and higher acute myocardial infarctions post-inhalation. Uh, it's twice the rate. And also increased cardiovascular mortality, probably related to vessel injury, just like with smoking tobacco, that those vessels get injured and may uh, be, um, have more friction and carry more plaque and become a risk for a heart attack. A um, couple of the Physicians I, who are hospital-based I've worked with on this issue noticed, and it's been corroborated in the literature as well, that for people with hepatitis C, if they're daily marijuana smokers, they increase the fibrosis in their livers. And we don't know the mechanism. Again, it may be around vessel injury, but that's not good. They already have uh, abnormal hepatic functioning. How many of you heard of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome? Yep. So when this started to happen in Colorado, these you know relatively young, healthy gals and guys going to the emergency room with this intractable vomiting. And ironically enough, they'd say, you know, if I shower, take a bath, I feel better. Well, they would get incredibly expensive GI workups, right? Endoscopy, colonoscopy, imaging studies. And now most of the ER staff and the hospitalists start with a urine drug screen if they're young. And if they have high levels of THC, they first try to get the patient to lower the amount of um, 
marijuana they're using as a first step. And of course, if it doesn't go away, they complete the workup. And remember with, with THC, low levels are anti-emetic, right? That's been used in cancer patients, um, uh, HIV patients, especially in the 80s, would, would use marijuana uh, to, to decrease their nausea. And then this is, has been a real concern in certain parts of Colorado, especially Pueblo, Colorado, which is a less affluent um, community where uh, the medical marijuana, recreational marijuana industry has hit very hard, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But we do know that THC suppresses oogenesis, impairs embryo implantation, um, and is, has some... Uh, association with abnormal sperm motility, which can um, interfere with reproductive health as well. And with heavy use, there can be some testicular atrophy, and I'm with a straight face talking to my young adolescent men about, you know, it's your choice. I wish you'd not do this until you're 25 or older, but just be aware of this one fact. And I, I say it without blinking, and they're kind of taken aback and I'm sure go home and get on Google to find anything that would dispute that fact, right? <laughs> so the real sad thing is, you know, the placenta and the breasts are very lipophilic, right? So the THC crosses easily. And we know these babies born to mothers who are using uh, marijuana on a regular basis are small for gestational age. They're inattentive. They're hyperactive, very similar to children born to opiate addicts or, or meth addicts. And they have some memory and learning problems that tend to persist until adolescence, at least. That's how far they've been followed. And what's sad about that is that they will have lower academic achievement because of this exposure. Um, Denver Health and Hospital did an interesting little study. I love the way it was designed. They, the method they used was called the mystery caller approach. And they hired one, um, one of their uh, research assistants to pose as a woman who is eight weeks pregnant and has severe pregnancy-related nausea. Now, she called 400 dispensaries <coughs> and basically said to all of them, look, I'm eight weeks pregnant and I have a lot of nausea, do you think marijuana would help me? And 69% of the dispensary, uh, bud, I call them bud masters that work there, really endorsed the use of, of marijuana for uh, morning sickness. And Pueblo was so concerned about that that they started this campaign where they had volunteers make, uh, make these little baby t-shirts or bibs that said, don't give my baby marijuana. And they hung them on the dispensary doors, just as kind of an educational thing. But, you know, almost 70%. It's, it's just incredible. So there's a lot of education we need to provide to the industry so that they're not giving blatantly uh, um, dangerous advice to their clients. We know that cannabis components are neurotoxic to the adolescent brain. And just like that baby uh, born and exposed, it can interfere with new learning and memory because it has um, um, 
a lot of contact with the hippocampus, which is involved with those things. It can accelerate the onset of psychosis in a vulnerable individual. And what I mean by that, let's say there's a strong family history of schizophrenia, and you have a 13 or 14-year-old, let's say twins. One of those 13-year-olds doesn't touch cannabis. The other one does. The one that is not using cannabis will probably have the index episode of their psychosis illness, 18, 19, 20. The one who has been exposed to marijuana may have an index episode of psychosis at 14 or 15. And the, the reason that makes a difference is the one who is not exposed has many more years of academic success, um, learning social skills, and will have a much better prognosis than the one that had you know, a comorbid problem with marijuana. Um, A-motivational syndrome, have you heard that phrase before? Just with heavy chronic marijuana, there's sort of this lackadaisical attitude about life. You know, nothing gets done, so what? No ambition, no initiative. And it's very serious. It's not, it's, it's not simply being lazy. The brain has been changed by the drug. There's a lot of debate about whether or not cannabis is a gateway drug. Most proponents of legalization say no. Um, we think... Uh, most addiction specialists, psychiatrists, think it probably is a gateway drug because of the potency today. Again, we've gone from something that was 2 to 3% THC to something as high as 90%. And that's what these young kids are getting. They're not getting the, the pot from the 60s. So this is probably a little pale, but it's a, a slide that proponents of legalization used a lot during our debates to say, you know, look at this tobacco that's out of this world. Look how addictive it is. And, and we know that's true, right? Or look at heroin. You know, marijuana is nothing like heroin or cocaine. And here is cannabis. You know, historically we thought about 10% of people actually become dependent on cannabis. But I want to bring your attention to this slide. This study was done in 1994. <laughs> So decades earlier, when you could not get marijuana products with THC concentrations at 10, 15, 90%. So what we've tried to do in our education is just say, we are, this is a new drug. You know, this is not, not the marijuana from the 60s or 70s. This is a brand new drug that is being targeted toward younger people. And if you look at the dispensaries and the way things are advertised, I believe that's very true. Um, cannabis withdrawal earned a place in the DSM-5. And I will say the withdrawal is not nearly as dangerous as a benzodiazepine withdrawal, um, not nearly as uncomfortable as an opiate withdrawal, but it's uncomfortable enough where the person can't sleep, they're irritable, nervous, they may even be depressed, that they can't stop on their own, even though they're motivated to stop using marijuana. And that generally um, involves at least a brief residential treatment to ensure abstinence, give them education, give them psychosocial comfort, so that they can then go into outpatient treatment and continue on their abstinence plan. Um, we also know, and I, I want to emphasize, we know this with smoked marijuana products. I don't know about the edibles, but 
You see atrophy in the hippocampus, the amygdala, the cerebellum, all important parts of the brain for various functioning. Um, and lots of psychiatric complications. I think uh, there may have been one or two psychiatrists in the state of Colorado that were big proponents of legalizing marijuana, believing that it would have utility in treating mental illness. Um, what I think is important, I'm talking about the THC in the plant that is not good for people who are at risk for mental illness. And I've mentioned you know, the, the increased risk for psychosis, but also depression and suicide. There have been some youth suicides in Colorado, well, it increased in, in suicides, and a good number of them tested positive for marijuana and not alcohol or other substances. Um, more anxiety, even though people perceive marijuana as being kind of an anxiolytic substance, we see a lot of panic um, in the ERs. Mentioned the cognitive impairment and actually structural changes to the integrity of the brain. And this, uh, you know, that would be another lecture altogether. But one of our campaigns in Colorado is to be realistic and know that young people will experiment. And so we're trying a harm reduction model, educating adolescents, high schoolers, that you, know, you can permanently change the structure of your brain. And we're asking that if you are going to use this substance, wait until you're in your 20s, you know, preferably 25 or older before you do that, so that your brain can develop normally. Um, this is a group, the Rocky Mountain High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area, that puts out a volume on the impact of legalization every couple of years or so. This is a bit dated. There's one that just came out in 2018. And you can get this online. I encourage you. It's a nonprofit organization that just collates everything that's happened in Colorado related to the industry. <clears throat> so this was November 6, 2012, um, election day. And this was when marijuana became fully legalized in the state of Colorado for both medical purposes and recreational purposes. And there was a big party. And I'll tell you a funny story. You're familiar with 420? I see a lot of shaking heads. So the Colorado University at Boulder is a big party school. So it's great, great university, but they're known for parties. They're known for high alcohol poisoning rates, that kind of thing. But every 420, they would have a huge gathering. This was usually mid-afternoon or so. Um, the joints got lit up. Uh, the news would kind of be out there covering it peripherally. But the school was really embarrassed. So one year, in the field where the kids used to go, they turned on the sprinklers. <laughs> <laughs> this is a true story. But guess what? It didn't deter the kids. I don't think they knew they were wet. I mean, they were just, <laughs> they were having a lot of fun. Then next year, they put manure down on that field. <laughs> it didn't deter the kids. And so they finally literally shut down that field on 420. And mostly not because they were prudes about it. They were concerned about safety. You know, you have a bunch of adolescents who are uh, stumbling and, you know, maybe going to drive home after that. So they were concerned more about safety. So they took 420 to the Capitol in Denver instead. It was a pretty amazing event as just an onlooker with this legalization. Um, some of the unanticipated events in Colorado, lawsuits. Talk a little more about this on a, a couple of slides. 
neighboring states where marijuana is not legal got a little PO'd with us because there were these um, uh, people taking legal marijuana from Colorado to sell in other states. So they, they actually sued us. A heroin surge. Now what happened there is the cartels from south of the border and actually Cuba now, we have cartels from Cuba, saw that the, marijuana, the, the marijuana market was saturated. So they're bringing other things. And we're seeing a rise of methamphetamine, a rise of heroin, um, which is very sad with our opiate epidemic that's going on. And we hear that cocaine is coming from Mexico. So, you know, the, the vision was people smoking a little pot. This, you know, it's going to calm all the drug problems in Colorado. It hasn't happened. We have a black market persisting, and people, including cartels from other countries, coming to our forest lands and, and growing marijuana. Um, the problem with that is it really is damaging the land because of pesticides, high water consumption. Marijuana plants consume four gallons of water every day per plant, and there are thousands of them. Um, there's a new gray market, and that is legal marijuana being diverted to other places outside of Colorado. What we really didn't count on is that the medical marijuana cards would persist after full legalization. We thought, you know, that'll go away, make it easier on doctors. But in fact, very few people uh, gave up their card. And the reason is recreational marijuana is taxed at a higher rate than medical marijuana. And my own theory about the black market is it's not taxed at all. And all three products look the same. So it, it didn't happen as the proponents had predicted. We've definitely had more crime in our states. Again, a cash-only enterprise. Um, that's why you see those uh, kind of armored trucks available to the dispensaries. Whether it's a revenue gain or loss, the jury's still out in Colorado. It's estimated that it's probably about 1% of Colorado's budget. But what really needs to be looked at is increased enforcement costs. The volume of patients going to the emergency rooms or actually going into addiction residential care. Um, so we don't know for sure yet. Then the popularity of edibles uh, really surprised everybody. We, we thought everybody w would want to be smoking. But the true Coloradans who want to be healthy didn't want any part of the smoke. So the edibles became very popular. And as a result, we've seen more child and pet exposures because they look exactly like candy or, or cupcakes you'd buy in a store. And so you can see here, this is mostly what I'm concerned about, is 2013 public consumption, 2014 went way up. And we believe this has to do with a, a perception of um, acceptability because it's now legal. And the uh, memorandum that came out from the attorney generals, you know, we're going to tread lightly, that the general public was more willing to use this substance with its legality. And sadly, some people believe legality means safety, right? And all of us in this room know that that's not necessarily true. <coughs> Interdiction seizures, this just shows between 2014, 
just how many uh, seizures of marijuana going outside of the state. Here you can see the edibles. Many of them mimic candy bars that you kind of already know about and very enticing for children and even pets. Um, here's some more. There's even a soda pot. Um, and here's the problem with the edibles that later kind of got addressed. When they're used orally, there's a, there's a strong first pass effect, right? It takes a while for it to digest, get in the bloodstream, and create some kind of psychoactive uh, response. So it takes about 30 to 60 minutes for that to happen. So people using these edibles for the first time are kind of like, it didn't work. So they eat a little more. Still not working, eat a little more. And that's where we've seen terrible overdoses that included some deaths. I won't go into a lot of detail, but these were four of the earlier deaths. Um, I am going to go to one example. This is a, a college student from Wyoming who came to visit to Colorado and went to one of the dispensaries. And he got an edible. It was a chocolate chip cookie. And he pinched off a piece. Nothing happened. You know, eventually ate the whole thing got extremely psychotic and jumped off a balcony to his death. And he didn't read the fine print on the cookie, but what it said is, do not consume more than one-twelfth of this cookie per hour. Now, who's going to do that with a chocolate chip cookie? I mean, it's not going to happen. So the state got after them and changed some of the labeling. Dr. I'm good. Anderson, yeah. I want to make sure that um, we have a little bit of time for okay. questions. We have clinicians that have thrown off the clinic. Okay. All right, let me just skip some of this. It's just more, you know, our homelessness has increased. Demands on emergency departments, uh, the, the increase in use. There was a theory that alcohol consumption would go down. It has not. It's gone way up uh, despite the availability of marijuana. I talked about the gray market. Um, you know, we see houses, and they're, they're not houses in poor neighborhoods. People pick like an area called Greenwood Village, very nice houses where they create these grows. When they get busted or when they leave, the houses are fully contaminated with a lot of uh, pesticides and a lot of mold or fungi. 66% of uh, local jurisdictions in Colorado said, I don't want dispensaries. That's not in my backyard. So guess where the dispensaries are going? In, in disadvantaged neighborhoods, adding another burden to a population that's trying to make it, right? Um, I'm going to skip most of this in the interest of time, but my message here is that CBD, not THC, CBD is where the money is for medicinal purposes. And it's beginning to get researched, and I think we are going to find good uh, uses for that. And let's see, just closing thoughts. We have to study each individual component, right? Not the whole marijuana plant to really do proper science. Um, we need delivery systems that are less prone to abuse. It is not a good idea to create new medical um, treatments through ballot initiatives. I think that is a horrible precedent, right? Um, we're not going to know for decades how this really folds out. It's kind of a social experiment. And what I really want to say, and kind of a segue into the next, next conference, is the commercialization of uh, marijuana has followed Big Tobacco's plan to a T, and it's worked very successfully. And I'll stop there because I know we're out of time.
comment that the one thing that's kept the marijuana industry from following the path of big tobacco is the federal, uh, the way the federal government mm -hmm. handles marijuana. It's a class one drug. And since banks won't deal with the money, you don't have Philip Morris and Bacardi and mm -hmm. McDonald's and these big corporate interests interested in in marijuana right now. So I just wanted to give you a comment on on whether you think that's a good thing mm -hmm. or whether you think it would be better to make it legal on a federal level, level so that we can have, you know, better regulation at the federal level of the product, right. you know, through the uh, corporate, standard corporate way of doing it. That's a good point. And, and it is happening now that the tobacco industry is looking at the success of the marijuana industry and, of course, wants to get on board. Personally, I would like to see... Uh, marijuana regulated similarly as alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. <laughs> haven't done a good job with that. But I think it would be better than what we're doing now. I think there needs to be some federal oversight uh, with a product that potentially can cause harm. So, yeah. so that won't happen until, until the federal government changes the class. Right. right. And there may be pressure for that. Yeah. Is there understanding why alcohol use has gone up? Um, well, I hear different things that, you know, when you're smoking a cannabis product, you get hungry, and then you eat the peanuts or whatever, then you get thirsty. I, I think that's part of it. Also, Colorado, there's just been a groundswell of um, uh, new breweries. You know, it's just very popular, so I think that's part of it. And also, our population has growth beyond description, um, really kind of too fast for the infrastructure we have. Yeah. Yes. With the medical marijuana prescriptions, is it possible to say I want my patient only to have edibles because of his respiratory disease, or is there no? No, it's sort of a binary system where you, you recommend yes or no for a, one of the specific conditions. They get a green card and... You know, maybe this is protective of physicians because the patients are getting the majority of their information from the bud tenders there, you know. So, I mean, you could have that, you could have that conversation and tell them exactly how to use the edible, yeah. And document, document. It's about protecting your license, right? Yeah. Dr. Gunderson, I want to thank you for uh, giving grand rounds. It'll be about a 15-minute break, so if you have other questions, come up and I'm uh, sure you know.